So Langdon, what I'm getting from this is that like, you're like the internet kind of personified talking to me. <laughs> That's I, fair. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Kind of. Like, it's not even meant to be good or bad, but it's like, it's literally like if I Googled something and the internet wanted me to understand <laughs> it, I it would be in up. your voice. Yeah. <laughs> hey man. And you'd be like, uh, uh, and I'd be like, let's talk about your Google search real quick. <laughs> Yeah, and then you tell me all kinds of tangents about things that were related, also that are internet worthy and based. Yeah, this no, it's great. So what I'm saying is that gritty eating a double down is my favorite uh, thought in the world. Okay. I imagine he likes double downs, but he only communicates this with like a <gasps> like that kind of sound. Yeah, that's a that's the sound he makes. He doesn't. Uh, I, okay. He doesn't talk. Yeah. He. Uh, that's just like yeah yeah that sound that that's the yeah. exact sounds like you know like like, thanks gritty i agree <laughs> you're doing your best gritty and we respect that here's some cool. literary news everyone <laughs> firstly uh carlos esquera died um he was yeah. that that's a bummer because he was yeah. um like the 2000 AD artist. Yeah. So, and if you didn't grow up uh, damaging yourself with 2000 AD like I did, it's a seminal British weekly comic book anthology magazine that launched the careers of everyone good in British comics. Yeah. Like everyone. And the only other magazine that comes close is Warrior. Hmm, yeah. Like, Which only one. Admittedly, Alan Moore did write for. Yeah. But um, yeah. It, it uh grant morrison zenith was in 2000 ad there was ev- everyone was in 2000 ad that's why a literally lot of, everyone a lot of great comic book writers are british like um, neil gaiman peter milligan alan moore wrote for 2000 ad like um yeah, a whole generation I, came up in that magazine and they were being drawn if they did judge dread or strontium dog they were being drawn by carlos esquera uh who just passed away and uh so that's a bummer r.i.p to him yeah. And you know who else? Uh, I'm not even going to do a tangent on this. Ka- Kanye. Um, Fuck. Yeah. <laughs> the, it, it's not literary news, except in the way he once said he'd write a book. But he says <laughs> a lot of things. And um, yeah, he's... That's the fucking truth. <laughs> it's a, kind of an understatement, I've, I think. Um, <laughs> yeah, he is now against uh, the amendment that overturned slavery because jobs and then lana del rey told him off on twitter instagram sorry lana del rey told him off on instagram and yeah so i'm gonna speak in wrestling terms temporarily because that's how i've decided to approach all things in the world um because i'm brain damaged and uh it keeps me from going even further insane so, for whatever reason, um, this is the equivalent of the uh, Stone Cold Austin heel turn in that no one expected it, no one wanted it, and everyone hates it, which ironically Oof. makes it ultra-effective. Kanye went from releasing, like, back-to-back... Back, his first five records, everyone loves. Mm, it was like... like college the- Dropout, Late Registration graduation my beautiful dark twisted fantasy Jesus, it's just like 
you have the smorgasbord of artistic talent jumping from genre pool to genre pool, um, influencing like everyone from like metal bands to hardcore bands to hip hop to R&B to pop, like experimental artists just, I mean, bringing a lot of people into the mainstream that otherwise wouldn't have gotten heard. Everyone's going nuts. Everyone loves him. He sat back and he went, what do I do with this attention? I'm going to become racist. And it's like, Kanye, what? And he's like, yup, that's right. It's the heel turn, baby. And you're like, why? <laughs> um, so in that terminology, I weirdly respect it in that that's the only way I can cope with it. Uh, I hate it so much. That it, uh, that my brain breaks and I go, I like this, uh, to protect myself. I want to be clear. I don't like racist Kanye. Hmm. Especially. Is that how it works though? Like you hate something so much you can't help but respect it? Is that like a, I mean, well, is that in a wrestling? Thing? Yeah, the other option. Oh, is, yeah, it's the heel. I get it. Okay. The other option is I think about how much I actually hate it and get screaming mad and cannot carry on with my day. <laughs> oh, so, that, so that's a much more useful uh, use of your time, I guess. Right? Like, it's a strategic thing. I I don't like it. I hate it. I literally, this year, I wrote and released a 30,000-word nonfiction piece about Kanye in 2018, uh, the records that he dropped through June, um, their relation to my life. Like I've, I've, and it's not the first thing of that size or scale I've written about him. I've spent a lot of time engaging with his work. And holy fuck, why does he make it so hard? To, I just want to listen to his records. That's all I want to do. Why does he have to be racist now? So I have this against theory. black people. It's, I have this theory about fame and it's a theory that i've held for a long time and it seems to hold pretty true that there is a certain level of fame at which is like somehow it's like a pinnacle it's the very top and once you reach that point you can no longer retain your sanity and like pretty much any artist musician actor like when one accumulates this gigantic amount of fame i've just seen a lot of like visible problems with like communication and it just seems like reality is no longer holding you <laughs> so yeah i have a theory that you you reach this one point and after that point your sanity is so difficult to maintain that you maybe cannot yeah there's actually been there's actually been a lot of uh, really excellent, like, post-Lovecraftian horror that deals with, um, that deals in madness in those terms. So it's a fair Yeah, way, like, there, there's a, a point accepted. where you can no longer ho hold on to it for some kind of cosmic reason. Yeah. yeah. It's like your whole, like, the social ground that normally goes unspoken, but is part of, uh, part of how we... So that whole thought that, like, our sense of selves and our sense of personal identity, you can't really fully extract from your social environment. Um, we sort of tell ourselves the pleasant psychological myth that we have a self that lives in a society. But, it, you know, it's, it's murkier than that. Which isn't, oh, that's not, oh, that's shocking. Ooh. Um, but 
it's like fame so radically ungrounds those elements that it's like you become a free-floating radical. Hmm. Right. (laughs) You ever read uh, R.D. Lang, no relation to Olivia Lang, his anti-psychiatry kind of stuff? A lot of it's pretty weird and problematic, but his whole idea about how madness is social, how like a family will need a crazy uncle, and that's where schizophrenia will come from. Or we'll need the crazy witch in the village. And mm. Oh, like we need to to have that yeah, as, like, as a like, society. Yeah, and even like even earlier like shamans in uh like pre industrial cultures. We'll need that guy who can go way out there uh, in order to perform a function in our society. But with Kanye it's, and, and with famous people, they've become so abstracted from anyone and anything that they can't even do that and they end up becoming even crazier but in a a, they're not even insane in like the um psychiatric sense that he's just not he, he doesn't have to do anything in terms of thought that other people have to do in their lives you know what i mean right he doesn't have to be sane. the tough thing with this is that is that using words like crazy, I try to stay away from just because, you know, there's there's yeah. a lot to unpack with oh, that word. Sure, yeah. um, and also like dealing with something like anti-psychiatry and even framing it as like maybe there's some correctness in here is really tough for someone like me because, you know, I've relied on psychiatry to remain alive for a mm. lot of my life. Yeah, same. same. I mean, um, <laughs> there's a big chorus I'm of same stuff. And I had a whole Twitter conversation about this, about like, you know, not being ashamed of the fact that like some of us need certain medications to survive for different reasons. Um, but yeah, it's interesting to think about how sanity is viewed and how, you know, the, the different, the different uh, views of how one loses their sense of reality and, um, and I mean, it reminds me, have you guys read IQ 84 by Murakami? Uh, I'd like the first chapter. But, uh, ah. It's no, a big well, book, it's so that's not it's much. A, oh yeah, it's a gigantic book. I haven't even finished it, but I mean, I feel like I got to this point and I was like, oh, I got it. I probably don't. But there's a moment in there that I really refer back to all the time. And it's this strange moment where this person climbs over, they're on a highway stuck and they see a ladder coming down from the highway and they like swing themselves over and climb the ladder down and after that moment reality shifts and it's like you're seeing the world in this new light because something that seems so mundane and normal wasn't and um then the whole book kind of like takes off from there but I always refer to it as like a highway. I always refer to moments like that where the veil is taking off, taken off of something as highway ladder moments. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, because of that book. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Yeah, it kind so, of fits in with what we're talking about. It, it, it touches also a bit on... Um, so one one aspect of contemporary philosophy before these thoughts sort of got like fucking everything in the 2010s got hijacked by fascists. Um, there was uh, this movement to uh, sort of break down some of the philosophical idealism of thoughts like uh, life is ideally 
pleasant and it is ideally comfortable and that these are attainable long-term goals and notions of uh, perpetual grips on something like uh, traditional models of sanity are are something that's attainable and uh, the the thoughts work to break this down only only by saying that we live in this sort of vast sea of possible experiences and actually like contemporaneous experiences that don't really outline those those thoughts are very pleasant to hold on to and they make us feel good and they give us something to strive for but we sometimes delude ourselves and create um walls of shame when we don't live up to those ideals because if if we're if we strip off the varnish and no longer think in terms of what do I need to tell myself to get through the day, a lot of life has a lot of very bad things just <laughs> shot through it. Like, and there's no way to extract it because it's sort of like if you're born, one day you will die and it likely will be painful and very scary. There's no air on that. It's just literally it's, it's baked in. And, you know, we get things from there. There will be disease. There will be. And you start building out sociologically and you have these other issues. And we can try our very best to address them. But we aren't actually better served by lying to ourselves about, you know, we can make them go away. That actually creates these bit, a bigger whiplash in moments where they come back. And how it can make someone look like they're a mm-hmm. hyper-negativist and a Debbie Downer and, like, uh, a to- really toxic person to more aggressively go, like, no, these are parts of mm-hmm. the world and we need to accept them, even if just in sort of the Buddhist sense of acknowledge that they're there. Um, and that ties a bit into the radical discomfort we can get from looking at someone like Kanye, who to his credit is at least very open about having bipolar disorder and not consistently medicating it. Right. Um, which does get subtracted way too often from discussions of him because it's easy to look at certain things when you have bipolar and go, holy shit, that's a dude having a manic fit with a microphone and a huge audience in front of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And just thinking like, there are times I've said things that are not too far from that, but I thankfully didn't have so many people or so loud a mic in front of me. I just mm-hmm. freaked out friends and were like, you need to go see your doctor again. Um, yeah, and that's and that's actually a really excellent point, is that I feel like the more audience one has, the more, of course, scrutiny one has. And it's a difficult thing to brook and, like, kind of deal with. Um because, you know, I'm not someone who deals with that level of scrutiny, um, but people I'm like tangentially kind of talking to or interacting with sometimes do have that level of scrutiny. And it's act- it's something that I have a, I mean, I would say a rational fear of, but I, it's pretty rational. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I don't like, you know, I never want to be in that position of having every single thing about myself scrutinized. Um, so... I don't know. I've just been seeing a lot of that where as someone gets more kind of quote unquote success, then they get this crazy level of scrutiny, you know, placed upon them. And I don't think anyone could hold up to that level of scrutiny either. It reminds me in a, obviously it's not a one-to-one relation, but it reminds me of the way that being in a marginalized uh, group can make you hyper visible in certain ways. Um, to the point where any mistake you make suddenly not only is a like 
a damning mistake on your end, but also is broadcast to every member of your group of an example of what they do. Um, and that same level of hyper-visibility being... I'm super lucky. I'm a cishet white dude, so I don't have to deal with that pretty much at all. But I can only <laughs> imagine the level yeah, of, like... It's like being thrust into a labyrinth with no exit. So it's just, wander these halls, they're always moving, and also every direction is wrong. Or there's a minotaur. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, it's it's interesting because that's, like, the the scrutiny that I am really kind of, that I fear also has to do with the fact that I do project my statuses, like, you know, as part of what I'm doing with my label. Yeah. And, you know, it, like, I, it, when I first took over this label, it didn't even, it honestly didn't occur to me that I was one of the only women doing this and the only queer woman I know of who owns a record label. And at first I was like, well, you know, I don't want people to like care about it just because of who I am as a person. But then what I recognized is that it was also really important for me to project that because there are so many women involved in, you know, on every level of this, you know, extreme metal or even just music scene where that visibility would be really important. Like for me growing up and not really having a lot of women in music that I could look to and, you know, not very many queer women, especially and and like, you know, the more extreme genres of industrial and noise and metal, you know, it, it made it kind of difficult. Um, and if I had had someone like me to kind of look to and be like, well, she's kind of hacking it, she's doing all right. It would have been a pretty important thing for me. So it's weird because I'm trying to not be scrutinized and not be like, oh yeah, it, it's that queer lady music label. But at the same time, that's my Twitter bio, like queer lady music label. <laughs> so it's, it's interesting to think about how, you know, I don't know if that's going to change if the level of scrutiny on me gets, you know, tighter, but yeah, it's, it's a weird thing to kind of bridge, I think. So I was thinking about this in terms of, uh, last week's guest neckbeard death camp and uh -huh. how and how they started out as like a bunch of guys making this funny joke band in this like very um insidey joke where if you've heard like nsbm war, war metal then you'll get the joke and mm -hmm. if you hadn't then probably not and they yeah. They were subject, because they blew up, they were subjected to massive scrutiny. Uh, they've been doxxed a thousand times. They've yeah. e Even people who are good, decent people have been going through their Facebook uh, pages, and that ended up uh -huh. with one of those and guys getting, uh, getting shit-canned. Well, yeah. choosing to leave. but uh, Or, was, um, you know, one of somewhere in between those two, I imagine. Um, but it's interesting because I was hoping this would come up because as I was like reading Crudo and as I was kind of like thinking about my week that came up because when all of that started blowing up, guess who was right in my DMs being like, oh my God, what's happening? Neckbeard Death Camp <laughs> and Kim <laughs> nice Kelly. Nice, by the way. Friends yeah. of the show. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, it was interesting because um, I like from the from the jump with all of that stuff, it was people I all fought like I followed all of these people on Twitter and some of them are my friends in person too and I was like what are you guys doing this is like we're eating our own here and everyone's kind of on a journey to radical decency and some people are on different parts of that path and it's like if we're 
holding these people up to this this like really tight level of scrutiny <clears throat> like how how would that affect you as a person i know that it would affect me as a person and it just seemed really i mean they're trying to call neckbeard def camp hypocritical and like money grubbing and all this stuff and i'm like they're just these guys who decided to do a funny thing and then got highly scrutinized for it mm-hmm. like I also want to tell them, like, you guys are also involved in the metal world. What yeah. money are they grubbing? <laughs> that's what I. That's like, what I was saying too. I was like, Oh, they're going to get their two thousand dollars, baby. <laughs> yeah, and they were like, well, they got signed, and they they get to do Maryland Death Fest. I'm like, look, if the way that you see someone else's, if you see someone else's success as somehow impeding your own, like that's. That's not what we're doing here, or at least that's not the page I'm on. And, you know, that's not what I want to project about what we're all doing here, you know, and it just seems really short sighted to try and take down one band and say, like, well, they're, you know, taking our spot. It's like your spot. Really? You think that Mm -hmm. there's like a zero sum game going on here where only, you know, only certain bands will ever be number one on Bandcamp? And now you have to take someone down. It's in, in order for yourself to be up there. Like that's just a, it's a really messy way to see it. And it's not something that I agree with at all. There's so also, there's a, there's a handful of like concatenated issues with this. I duh, that's what we've been saying the whole time. Thanks Langdon. Um, <laughs> but one is like, I, how does someone work in music? journalism, especially dealing with extreme metal, and not know that Maryland Death Fest, even though it's the biggest metal festival of its size in America, doesn't offer these mind-blowing payouts to bands. They offer payouts, and it's it's good money, but it's not it's not like they're walking away with like, oh, we're going to give you $100,000 to play at Maryland Death Camp. It's going to be nowhere near that. Yeah. Like, nowhere near. And like getting signed to prosthetic, it's like do you do you guys know how much it takes to record a record through the, like the kinds of advances they tend to give out? This is fairly easily Googleable. They're not they're not being handed like ghost money. That's not, and even yeah. then, like most of that money disappeared and didn't go to anybody because that went to paying out you know producers and artists and stage designers and things like that. Like it's it's so weird because it's like. Watching people yeah, and who've been are, writing. Yeah, and these are music journalists. But the thing right. is, is like I'm coming from it from like a label owner standpoint and knowing other label owners and all of us complain about how this is like this is not an industry where any of us are making money. The bands don't make money. I mean, all like any money that they get back would go. I mean, bands put in so much money at the jump, like equipment, yeah. like um, driving places, gas money, recording expenses that may or may not be, you know, given back by the label. A lot of times they're not. Most times there aren't even advances involved, especially in extreme metal. So it's like, I don't understand how anyone thinks that there's, you know, that they're losing out on money because this other band <clears throat> has, you know, a label looking at them and they have like a kind of middling slot in death fest. It's like, that's <laughs> the thing is they have to, you know, they're, they probably maybe have their travel covered, but I mean, there's so much that's not covered in expenses. So it just seems really strange to me, but then I'm coming from it from an industry standpoint. And, you know, I don't know if other people necessarily have that perspective. 
it's such a just it's such a strange such a strange thing to have to have had happen especially when one a lot of these same motherfuckers are the ones who are telling me war metal is good when war metal is decidedly very not good it's <laughs> like the more it's the most boring cliched parts of death metal black metal and lo-fi production all jammed together and the whole joke is it, to me is instead of it being like oh it gives a this like feral sense to it be like no the first slayer record had a feral sense of like untamed musicianship or like venom like this just sounds like it's bad like that like you were in 2018 you can download free software that will make it sound better than this this is so here's here's where i actually disagree with you so (laughs) the reason that i got into like extreme metal to begin with was because of the kind of raw primitive emotional like um sound of it that really like the sound quality was not really paid that much attention to like i listened to a lot of really raw shit and for me it actually um resonated because for me the reason i got into this music is because as a marginalized person growing up in the south my whole life i've always felt this very primitive anger that you know it you know it wasn't appropriate first of all for a woman to express and you know i didn't really have i didn't i needed something that really got that extreme primitive anger and for me i didn't pay attention to any of what like the lyrics were saying and this was pretty pre-internet so i didn't know anything about the bands or the people or anything else um so for me it really resonated and i you know i have some stuff in my collection um like along that vein so i do disagree with you that like it's just bad (laughs) um but i feel like in 2018 like you know with all of the trappings kind of stripped away and me like being able to see like this isn't cool it just puts a different spin on it because now i can't take that music and make it my own and say like well this makes me feel you know angry as a marginalized person, whereas the music can be angry at marginalized people, you know, yeah. and I didn't realize that at, from the jump. Oh, I, di- I didn't mean to say that, like, lo-fi production um, or elements like that are the thing that I find bad. I find that, like, more that groups that are lumped into war metal often, the better ones tend not to ask for it. Um, <laughs> and a lot of the bigger names in it feel to me like there are already these raw doom and black and death metal that uh, is put out by, like, I Void Hanger. There's um, just, like, uh, Chaos Moon is a good example of just, like, this really raw... It sounds like uh, summoning a demon in a cavern and just, like, legitimately this sort of, like, effervescent evil that comes out from it. But then I put on War Metal, and it sounds like the drummer just didn't practice... Like it doesn't. Great, it's great in a way. So (laughs) here's the thing, though, is that I remember way back in the day of watching MTV, like back in the early '90s. I think it was Matt Pinfield said something about Nirvana that really resonated with me, and it was some. And he said, like, it's music that you can listen to without understanding the lyrics, but you understand the feeling behind it. And I feel like a lot of that kind of music hit me in that way, you know, where it was like the feeling behind it is what resonated and the actual like technicality and musicianship and all of that, you know, it wasn't as important. So that's kind of where, how I see that kind of stuff. Yeah. I, I mean, can, I could, yeah. It's, um, 
there's a lot of there's some decent war metal bands that do that that have some emotion there or at least a feeling or an aesthetic to them thinking like Pissgrave are good trench grinder are good but there are bands that are in that that are lumped in there in that genre who are just who don't feel emotional at all it feels like okay we're just going to play as fast and as loud and as badly as possible and eventually we'll reach some sort of level of I don't know, catharsis through being really loud and lo-fi. Well, there's actually a band called Catharsis that sort of wow. does that. Okay. <laughs> but, yeah, but, there's a band called Everything. <laughs> but, uh, <you> know. <laughs> there's a band called <laughs> it, There's a conversational, um, it's like dialectic gone wrong. Thank you, Hegel, you shithead. Um, when it comes to in extreme music circles talking about lo-fi or um more amateurish groups not amateurish in a negative sense just in you know they're not not everyone in the group is marty friedman um that it eventually turns into so a space where pretty much everyone has an amount of common ground you can't like death metal black metal grindcore things like that without liking lo-fi more primal more primitive senses like it just I don't know how you could exclusively listen to uh, <laughs> how you could listen to the genre of music and not have any affinity for it. And yet discussion of it eventually turns into um, uh, like it, it, it will eventually devolve no matter how nice the people are, or how much they agree outside of this conversation into uh, uh Dream Theater versus Venom. This is a, the, my caricature of the discussion is that it's one group of people who can't play their instruments at all, and that's great, and one group of people who can play their instruments super well, and some people like them and some people don't like them is my diplomatic response to that. But it winds up... Uh, it becomes a strange thing when you either even think back on the conversation you had where you're like, I remember listening to records that that both that would fit the description that either one of us provided for why we like it and we both liked it and hmm it's one of those like it's like the is a hot dog a sandwich argument but for for metal and punk <laughs> listeners uh is the the quality of primitiveness in that we all actually agree but we love to argue about it yeah i, <laughs> I, I mean that's this is how all metal conversations happen right like <laughs> Like, we all basically agree, but, you know, we nitpick. And it's fun yeah. because, I don't know, yeah. we get to have these conversations. Because we're a bunch someone, of nerds. And that's someone walk, yeah, we're a bunch of nerds. Someone walks yeah. in and is like, actually, Violence is the greatest thrash metal band of all time. And everyone turns on them and is like, you motherfucker, you really want to do this? Okay, let's argue. <laughs> yeah. Yep. The dude from uh, Two Minutes to Late Night does actually believe that Violence are the greatest um, fresh metal band of all time. So, shout out to him. He's good. Um, he is good. That's a weird and not correct opinion, but he's a good good, good dude. <laughs> According to you. <laughs> oh, I mean, I like Violence. It's just, it's weird to listen to them and go, this is it. This is the peak of the mountain. <laughs> no one's ever done this better. <laughs> So, Chris, Christine, how do you, how does one start? How does how do you get into owning and running a record label? 
Ah, I'm sure we've all thought of it at some point. That those amongst us, like me, who have tiny little stubby fingers and who can't play instruments, <laughs> and who get yes. f- bad throats very easily, so we can't deaf growl at all. And um, <laughs> drumming is just way out because I have no sense of rhythm. Keyboards, I can't do either. Um, yeah, people like me who have no musical talent and no ability, no way of getting a musical talent. How do we start record labels? Well, so. My answer and the story of Tridroid are actually going to be two different things. So the history of Tridroid is that it was started in 2012 um, by a guy named Andrew Rayberger. And it was one of the first kind of labels to start with, like, to the, to deal with, like, the tape resurgence back, you know, back several years ago. And he released a lot of stuff on tape and uh, dealt with a lot of local bands and, you know, started a label. And <clears throat> he released a lot of really cool stuff up to 2015, 2016, and then um, decided to sell the label and move on because I'm not sure why, actually. I didn't get to talk to him about it. Um, but so I actually took over Tridroid Records in 2016 Um in like mid 2016 and um Andrew tragically passed away in November of 2016 so part of you know me running this label is also as an homage to him and his legacy in the metal scene um and hope like I've been planning on a on a tribute compilation for a long time that I need to really focus more on so really the the story of Tridroid is different for me but the the way that I got into wanting to run a label is a little bit different. So I uh, was a like a college radio DJ um, back in the early 2000s um, for one of the best college radio stations at the time called WQFS um, from a really small college. And by my junior year, I was I became the metal director, which means like the person who got all of the metal promos. I talked to all of the um, all of the promotional people at the metal labels. I reviewed stuff. I put it in rotation um, and went to a lot of free metal shows because record labels wanted me to like them. So I was already kind of on the sort of industry side of things rather than the musician side of things, despite having grown up as a classically trained musician in piano and organ. Um, Badass. Yeah, my my dad and my great grandmother were church, are church organists. My dad still is. My great grandmother passed, um, so I come from a legacy of organists. Uh, so More organs I and metal, please. Yeah, I. Yeah, that shit's really I, tight. I, yeah, hey, whenever there's, when someone say. drops an organ, I like yeah, you've you've got me. Yeah, now. especially like well, so once there... it's perfectly in doom and sludge, but when it comes up in like death metal during like a slow breakdown, and then it's organ i'm like oh i'm losing my cool right now yeah yeah <laughs> and if there were an opportunity where someone were like hey christine do you want to do some organ recording for this thing i'd be like hell yeah um and the cool thing is is that i have like access to actual church organs because my father plays um and my wife actually recorded some of her audition stuff she's an opera singer recorded like um audition oh, stuff in a church with an organ anyway um so I grew, so the way that, let's see, so I was industry, but I also like played music. Um, and, you know, those post-college years, I was kind of like, I don't know. So 
it kind of fell by the wayside. And then I started co-running a label with a friend of mine back in 2013 for a few months. The business partnership did not work out, to say the very least, but I learned that I was pretty good at it. And um, but I also didn't want to kind of add to the glut of labels that were popping up and shutting down and popping up and shutting down. And I wanted to have something that, you know, where I felt like I was adding to to the to the dialogue of music rather than just saying, like, I'm going to start a label. We. Um, so when the Tridroid opportunity came up, it was actually like a Facebook message. It said like, you know, we're looking for someone to take over this label. And I saw it and I was like, oh my gosh. And I showed it to my wife and she was like, well, Christine, you have to do that. And thank goodness she said that because, you know, I had all of these, like, you know, I had so much self-doubt. I was like, I don't know if I could actually do it. Am I that good at it? Blah, blah, blah. And she was like, well, you just have to do it. So I wrote an email and um, the co-runner of Tridroid, Jason Oberuk, who plays in Suffering Hour and now in Satan Satyrs, kudos to him. Badass. Um, Love that. Yeah. Uh, so They're local to me. What? Uh, Satan Satyrs. Oh, yeah. Two Tridroid alums are in Satan Satyrs now, Jason Oberuk and Nate Towell. Nate Towell was in Wicked Inquisition, which Tridroid released back in the day with Andrew. Um, so in Suffering Hour, their first full length uh, was also on Tridroid on tape. So uh, I sent an email to Jason and was like, well, here's my story. Here's what I want to do. And I sent kind of like an action plan and ideas and stuff. And he was like, damn, this is the best email I've gotten. So <laughs> I'm going to sell this to you for a really good price and like wish you the best and, you know, try and make this transition work. So that's how I ended up taking over Tridroid. <laughs> so, I mean, when people want to start a label, I'm like, hell yeah, brother or sister, like, get it. Like, that's really cool. But my story of starting a label is actually kind of probably not the norm <laughs> of, of how labels like start. So I already had this foundation and I wanted to take it over because I wouldn't be adding to the glut. I could build on the foundation that Andrew had already built um, and move it forward. Cool. So, so what kind of stuff do you look for? Like if someone wanted to be on Tridroid, what do they need to sound like? So I, um, I like basically all kinds of heavy music. So, you know, I've gravitated a lot in my life toward black metal in particular, because that was really my entryway into metal. But even before that, I was into like weird industrial and noise stuff. So I actually have put out one noise recording um, out through Tridroid by a band called The Blight out of Minneapolis, um, but have done a lot of like black metal releases. Uh, and a lot of the releases I've done... Um, so Void Ritual was actually a Tridroid alum. Um, Andrew had worked with him back in the day. And, uh, he, so I got sent, uh, Heretical Wisdom and was like, hell yeah, I'll put this out. So that was easy. But a lot of it is like, are you doing something that I find really, really compelling? Um, which is a hard thing to really kind of tell people. Like, <laughs> Uh, I don't generally accept many submissions. The one time I've accepted just a random like Facebook message submission was when Emin from Violet Cold messaged me on Facebook. Oh yeah, that's uh, a strong nice. that's a strong sell. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh, I've oh, I've been such a fan of his since Desperate Dreams came out, 
I and like it weird. Like everyone I talk to acts like, um, not acts like it feels like it. That violent, violet cold is both like the biggest underground, like black gays group, partly mm-hmm. because no one really talks about them, but everyone likes them. <laughs> yeah. Well, Amin is also a very like secretive guy. And the fact that I got a Facebook message from him on my label account, <laughs> I have, I woke up at five in the morning and hopped up and was like, oh, my God, Melissa. And I woke her up and I was like, Violet Cold wants to work with me. And she was like, great, honey, and fell back asleep. But <laughs> I was so stoked that, like, out of whatever, like, Amin messaged me. So um, I've had the distinct pleasure of getting to work with him on Magic Night and um, the tape and double LP of Ano Me from last year. Good, um, good record, by the way. That's a really good record. Oh, man, I know. Well, the thing is, is like, so Amin was like, I really want this to come out on double LP. And I was like, oh, my God, how am I going to afford that? But I'm going like, to make it work because this is Violet Cold. Um, and he had mentioned being approached by larger labels, like names I could name, but I'm not going to that are big names. And he was like, but I want to work with you. And I was like, holy shit. So I was like, I'll, I'll do this double LP. Um, but yeah, that's really the one time that someone has just like messaged me completely randomly. And I've been like, hell yeah. Generally it's me working, like me seeing a band live or me being introduced to a band somehow. And I find it really compelling and I approach them. Uh, so that's what happened with, uh, Heavy Temple. Um, I've been a huge fan of theirs for years. And when they had the CP they wanted to put out, I was, I went through my PR guy at the time, Kurt DeWar, and was like, tell me how I can do this because I want to work with them. Um, and yeah, generally it's me approaching bands that I find really compelling to work with. Oh, well, one thing I wanted to add is that also with, you know, being a queer lady label owner, I definitely look for more marginalized folks to bring, um, to bring like to the fore because I feel like, you know, so much in extreme metal has been dominated by dominant culture. And I feel like women and marginalized people don't have the same access, don't have the same economic opportunities. And if I can, you know, bring that up more, make it more visible than, then it is going to be a good thing for, for folks like me and marginalized folks. So it's good good for boring cishet white dudes like me and Langdon too, because we get to hear like better music than what, guys well, like us can produce that's well that's the interesting the thing, thing that i bring to dumb shitheads who are like oh but i'm a misogynist and a racist so why should i be like because they make fucking great records you you fucking racist moron like <laughs> well that's the thing too is that i feel like you know i feel like we've been inundated by a very specific subset of sound yeah and you know opening that up is only going to benefit everybody because then we get to hear all of this stuff we didn't get to hear before, you know, like how much stuff have we not heard because the music industry has been so cis white male, like dominated for so long. How many voices have been just like, how many voices have we not heard? How many amazing albums have we not heard because of that? And it's like, how much can you even say that you love an art form if you don't want to see other new things that it can do like i uh yeah i think that, <laughs> i think that diversity serves us all and that's kind of you know my whole standpoint on it is that 
different perspectives and different sounds are only going to benefit everyone. So, you know, that's kind of my, my idea too. And um, so, yeah, a lot of the bands I've been working with have been, you know, um, queer people, people of color, women. um, And I just, you know, kind of gravitate toward that as um, someone who finds those perspectives really, really important. So, yeah. Um, so what's up next for Tridroid? Because you had a bit of um, a like hiatus earlier in the year. Now, now you're back, coming out swinging. Yeah. And what's up and next? Doing podcasts. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I am uh, working with a band called High Cost out of Brooklyn. Um, and it is, I always struggle on how to, how to describe it, but if you guys have listened to that Red Bay EP, um, loved it, by the way, amazing. Okay. So it's, it's in a similar vein really. Um, and kind of sounds a bit like couch slut as well. So it's very grindcore, uh, but very like hardcore punk, um, with metal elements. All the members kind of come from uh different bands and different perspectives and it all like comes together as this really excellent sound with very short songs <laughs> so like short that's songs. same so i'm working with them on their debut I like long songs <laughs> i know <laughs> well that's great if you like long songs because i'm also working with un um on a tape release for sentiment that just came out on double lp via translation loss like two days ago. Yes. <laughs> uh, so yeah, very long songs there. Um, and, <laughs> and Monty from Un is someone that I worked with um, previously because I put out the tape version of um, their previous album. Why am I blanking on the name? I'll remember it at some point. Um, and Monty is just someone that I really like as a person. He's excellent. I think he's, a genius i think what un is doing is incredible and if you haven't heard sentiment already like it's on Bandcamp. you've got to check it out um and i'm going to be doing the tape version of that which is slightly delayed because i just had this long road trip recently um but working on that as well and also on the uh second album for a band called antiverse which is a band out of Minneapolis, so staying true to the tridroid roots of uh, of St. Paul and Minneapolis. Um, and so the band is like technically proficient, but not you know technical in a bad way. Um, it's death metal, thrash metal, and just really riff oriented. Um, heavily influenced by, you know, 90s Swedish death metal, because that's where Carl Skildum, one of the guitarists, is very much coming from. Um, and just excellent riffy goodness. And that's coming out on CD via Seeing Red Productions, and then tape by me on October 22nd. Cool, 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 cool. So how how do tapes work? Uh, I don't mean like how they work <laughs> scientifically. That sounded really stupid. But um... we use magnetic <laughs> like magnet to change the pit to change the bits on the magnet tape. But uh, so, no, how, well, how does one like okay. um, put out an album on tape? Yeah, how how does the whole tape press thing work? Yeah, so I mean, 
pressing is a misnomer, but I always say pressing because, I mean, when you're talking about CDs and records, that's what you're talking about. Um, basically, with tapes, it's all about duplication. But um, so what I generally do is <clears throat> the band, you know, brings me their recording um, and I I take the art from the like either CD or LP or just the cover, like whatever they've got to send my way. Sometimes they'll send me um, a template of stuff that they like want on their cassette J card. And um, we kind of, we being my wife and I um, put it together uh, to make it fit onto a J card and also choose a tape color um, and also design an ink imprint. that's going to go on side A and side B of the tape. So once all of those files are done, uh, I send that off to uh, my tape guy, Corey, in Brooklyn, who runs a company called Cryptic Carousel. Um, and he uh, is basically like an expediter for tape production. Um, I love and... that job. <laughs> <laughs> Do you? <laughs> then you have to I want to be able to put down like... A, like a business card, expediter of tape production. <laughs> I'm like, what does that mean? And you're like, I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> I'm just going to make you wonder. So what he does is um, he has different companies that he uses out of like the just like two or three in North America that's, that do J cards, uh, tape shells, tape, like tape duplication and ink imprints. And um, I get a finalized product that I can then sell. Cool. Yep. So, and the thing is, is the turnaround for tapes is like not nearly what it is for something like a record. Um, but it, the tape, like the tape turnaround is getting longer because more people are into tapes. Who knew? Mm -hmm. um, and there are very few companies in the world who still make them. But uh, my tape guy does well by me every time. And even catches mistakes sometimes that I've made in layouts or sound. So he's great. Yeah. Shout out to Corey. And um, Corey, Pick if you need Corey. any interns, maybe, and are willing <laughs> to pay for me to fly across the Atlantic and like live in Brooklyn for a while, then uh, HMU, you know, <laughs> my, my DMs well, are open. I already live in America. You just got to get me to Brooklyn, baby. <laughs> I'm editing that out. <laughs> Yeah. First time. Roof floor. <laughs> Corey, DM, but yeah, so DM me. He, um, it's, the reason that I really like uh, working with tapes is that as someone who took over this label with absolutely no capital built up, because I mean, it was just a, you know, kind of off the cuff decision. Um, tapes are a really good, like low overhead um, way to kind of enter the releasing music world um, because you can do a run of a hundred tapes um, and it's not that, not that much money that you have to put out at the outset. Whereas like, you know, putting are, out, how much are we talking for like hundred tapes? If, if I, um, if I can ask. Let's well, the thing is, I think prices have gone up during my hiatus, but um, all said and done, like maybe 300, 350, somewhere what? in between those for a run of about a hundred tapes. So like the cost per unit can get a little, is a little bit high, but because you can do really low runs of it, your overhead overall is lower. 
which, and I just really like cassettes in general. I think it's a really hearty format and, you know, CDs I can take or leave. Records are insanely expensive and the return on investment takes so long um, that I really leave that up to the labels who, you know, do a really good job with it. Also, let's get to some insane audiophile nerd shit. Uh, cassettes still have probably the highest sonic fidelity that you can get in a popular media format because of, like, like insane advances, specifically in magnetic tape technology that has just continued. That yeah. It, it no longer was, like, a major talking point in popular space after, like, maybe 1990, 1994, something like that, somewhere in that area where CDs just really became the only thing that popular media used. Um, right. But, yeah, you can have, like, a normal-looking cassette that stores, like, a, roughly, like, a terabyte of data. And they're, yeah, they're kind absolutely. of expensive, but it's, like, less than you'd think, and you can just buy them. Sony just makes them. <laughs> Yeah. Well, it's it's interesting because so people tend to associate cassettes with like low audio quality. And the, the, the reason behind that is like twofold. Number one, it has to do with um, your duplication technology. So if you have like a shitty like 300 tape duper that you just throw on some blank tapes to like it's going to sound like crap regardless of your quality of magnetic tape or anything else. Um, and also because tape players tend to like the cheapies tend to sound like shit. So, you know, and also the tape reel that most people use is ferric, uh, which tends to kind of degrade more over time. But I try to use only chrome and cobalt uh, tape reel because it is much sturdier and uh, it sounds way better. Also, don't use shitty players, and car players will fuck your tapes up. That's very true. Yeah. God, I love audiophile shit. That's <laughs> my, my nerd vice. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, I I tell this, like, tape story all the freaking time, and just because I've always really liked tapes, and plus, living in a city, it made it so much easier to own a lot of music without it taking up an insane amount of space. Because having a record collection in Brooklyn is ridiculous. It's untenable because you're moving and you don't want to move all that shit. Tapes are easy. They're lightweight. They're hardy. You can just stick them in a box. And especially if, like, um, so I'm thinking specifically before uh, downloading music uh, became something you could easily do, like when it would take four hours for, like, a four-minute-long song. Um, Like, growing up in the 90s being a huge, like, music nerd young kid where you don't have a lot of money because you're literally a kid. You're like mowing lawns and like doing odd jobs and stuff like that to get like five or 10 bucks. Um, but like craving music and where I grew up, there wasn't like, there was one college radio station and then, uh, DC one Oh one reached us. And there was also a Richmond station, um, that reached us in terms of like rock music. And at the time they still played like some underground stuff. Outside of that, it was go to an independent record shop and find the cheapest stuff you could buy and just buy it up in mass. Um, and yeah. yeah, the fact that bands like local bands could cut something to a tape and like make it themselves very easily in a way that you can't outside of bigger cities, you can't 
like press a seven inch vinyl if you're in a rural area, especially a right. rural area in the south. There's there's no vinyl plants. Um, oh, but you, you know what? So talk to Paul from Twilight Fauna about that because Paul actually uses like a mom and pop like vinyl, and he lives in the middle of nowhere in East Tennessee, and he works I think with someone in Kentucky. Anyway, so there are possibilities, but very specific ones. But go on. But yeah, yeah so like the ability to like go find like oh here's like a stack of every tape this one like uh AB's thrash band put out. And you're like, "Oh god, that's fucking tight." Like the fir- my first copy of uh most Hyrax records, um Hyrax, I don't know how to pronounce yeah, it. Yeah, I think it's um, Hyrax. Mm-hmm. Were, were were all were all tapes and I got all of them for like 7 bucks. So it was like one lawn that I mowed and it's like, boom, I now own this uh, awesome band's entire back catalog. Yeah, well, the the thing is, is like tape culture and metal culture kind of are like they grew together very well. And I mean, the history of metal has a lot to do with cassette culture because, yeah. you know, with tape trading and stuff like bands that, you know, couldn't work with big labels to get their product overseas over to Europe or vice versa from Europe to here or from South America to anywhere else, tape trading culture is what brought bands that, that are now gigantic like Metallica. Yeah. You know, all over the up, world. Like Lars very famously being like eyeball deep in tape culture and being the yeah. PR guy for Metallica by just putting Metallica songs on tapes that he'd send people without telling them. You're like, Oh, by yeah. the way, that last track's my band. yeah well and it's ingenious and the whole thing behind tape culture is that it's duplicable it's you know there's a low cost of entry you don't have to be like some rich audiophile in order to get into music and to own music and so like that I think is what appeals to me too about tape culture is that you know metal proliferated because of it yeah so. It's really only only Bandcamp uh, now has been something close to well. I, I, to be fair, YouTube prior, but they didn't uh, offer money at all for a long time. But um, right. in terms of like that mass proliferation, uh, where a band could actually make even some money, but it was massively approachable. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Because, I mean, like, anything that brings a, like music to a ton of ears is generally a good thing, which makes it really funny to me that Lars, of all people, was the one who was, like, super anti-music downloading, because it's like, bro, you know. (laughs) In fairness, he did accurately predict that it would decimate the profitability of the music world, but that's that's a sheer technicality. Yeah, but the way that the music world was functioning was also really predatory and fucked Uh up. (laughs) Um, So, yeah. The thing is, like, he wasn't wrong, but also I feel like, you know, the music industry needed to die. Yeah. And And it was going to die whether or not Lars Ulrich decided that he was going to support or not support Napster. And, like, so outside of being a huge metalhead, I'm I'm huge into Prague. um, And a lot of groups until um, sometime in the late 2000s when there was enough of a resurgence that certain groups were able to do re-releases... Literally, I spent $50 to get a CD, an Anglegard CD, from a guy in Sweden, because their re-release schedule was, we found a dude who was able to make 2,000 copies of the CD. But that's it, it's 2,000, because that's all we could afford, because none of us are in the band anymore, so you have to pay for the Swedish dude's production, and then he's shipping it from his house to you. Um, yeah. and, and metal having a lot of issues like that as well, where, like, growing up in the 90s, it was... 
you go to the mall or like an ind- uh if you had a cool enough independent record store that sold metal and what you had available was what was there aside from that it was like frankly looking at people as being like dumb weird rich kids if they were able to find a zine and then order like a $40 like mayhem or limbonic art record or something like that from Europe. It's like, what the fuck did you do with all that money? You could have bought like seriously like 15 albums. You bought one. What's wrong with your brain? (laughs) And they could have bought like so many comic books and candy with that. Like, come on. That's that's so much money, especially to a kid. Yeah. And also, (laughs) I mean, basically your music experience is being curated by all these people you don't know whose tastes you don't necessarily know anything about. It's like, you know, in the music supply chain, there are just so many middle people that are, like, not letting you hear something before you could just go on Bandcamp and hear whatever you wanted. So, you know, I think it was short-sighted to, for the music industry to still be operating under this kind of dinosaur idea of, you know, people have to buy the records from us in order for you know, the music industry to stay afloat. Like, you have to figure out a way to run your business that doesn't rely on this very strict code of, like, interlopers, it in also, my opinion. It also ties into, and I think this um, this touches also a bit on, uh, going back to it, Kanye West, and why people aren't able to just drop him. And it's something that we get subtracted when discussing art in general, not just music, Um in especially discourse that seems to skew more towards sociology or um, or just generally social issues, which which is a fine and necessary angle, but isn't ultimately we only care about art because it has some kind of emotional value to us. It has a value that is one purely subjective, but two so deep that we are willing to bend some other aspects of ourselves in order to accommodate it. Um, It's the irrationalism of like being in love with someone and making bad decisions because to an outsider, it will never make sense, but you do actually feel this. Um, And ultimately the notion that art even should be profitable is an ideal, like an idealism and not necessarily a bad one, but ultimately not why people make it. Right. Like people yeah. made art before anyone made money doing it. They will continue to make art after people don't no longer make money doing it. Like that I but the problem don't... with the, the problem though with, you know, art not being like being seen as not profitable or even it not being profitable, which it generally most of the time it is not, the thing is that affects marginalized people more than anyone else. Because um, you know, just economic structures tend to say like, well, the people who can make this kind of stuff have enough money that they're making from their day-to-day job that they can buy all this equipment and they can go perform these gigs because they work a nine-to-five and not an overnight shift. So, you know, it's interesting because on one hand, you know, marginalized people can get their music at least out into the world, but at the same time, you know, it art not paying anything affects marginalized people more than it would affect the majority or not even majority, but you know, the cis white men that can produce music regardless. Does that make sense? It does. I feel a minor sting of that myself being that I, I, I deal with uh, uh, poverty sometimes quite severely. Um, and it's, it's not, you know, it's, it's not the only kind of oppressive structure, but it, it 
it is there. And being, um, I kind of move sideways into like music writing through, um, through being a fiction writer, a fiction and poetry writer, um, of one running into the weird myth that most people who make art make money doing it and that you have to be bougie to make art, which is from my experience, vastly not, not true. true. The vast yeah. majority of people I know are working class who work shift jobs, work overnight jobs, and literally are making sacrifices that to a rational person would be totally untenable because they're like, my life would not be livable if I were not doing this. I would be making more money and I would not want to live that life. Um, right. But yeah, running into the same thing of you are very, very well aware of the sacrifices you're making to do it. And when it starts to become profitable, that the level of strain that eases on you is indescribable. Precisely yes. because you are not working a nine to five job. You are not afforded the same things. It is a real sacrifice to make your art. Well, I think, but that's, it's true. Um, but the reason I say that marginalized people are affected is only because of the economic structures that mean marginalized people make less yes. doing whatever it is, you know, but, you know, the thing is, is, you know, everybody creating art, we're, it's, it is so much sacrifice. I guess it just, I wish it didn't have to be that way. Yeah. Um, but I'm also, you know, I am ridiculously idealistic in how I, you know, how I want to do things and how I want things to be. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm still kind of figuring out how to structure my business model so that it fits with what I want and also lets me do it. Does that, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's a real thing because especially trying to square, like, say, um, socialist politics versus the reality of the cost of, of capitalism cost of, uh, production. Yeah. like you have to pay your rent or you will go homeless regardless yeah. of your political inclination and so you <laughs> have this desire of i want people to hear this i want it to be accessible i remember being working class i remember not being able to afford a record that i wanted and thinking god that's so fucked up i can't enjoy art because i'm too poor but on the same hand you're like I need to pay my bills. The people who made this art yeah. need to pay their bills. Like, right. They well, also sacrifice things to make it. And it, yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and that's kind of what I want to bridge with both my life and my business. And we'll see if it works, honestly. <laughs> we'll, we'll see how, how it goes. But yeah, that's, I think, one of the hardest things to kind of figure out for both yourself and your life and your business. For me, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, I've been thinking about that a lot lately, and I just, I've even like opened spreadsheets and stuff to try and figure out how to make art, but also not starve. Yeah. And it's it's not going well. Like right? I mostly, I have a Patreon where I say like, I don't even like putting things behind the paywall of the Patreon, even for like a month. It like I feel weird and icky doing it, even though I understand the uh, the logistics of it. I'd rather go no, all of it's free. I would just like if you enjoy it to throw like a dollar or two dollars a month my way. So that way it's not a burden on you, but it does add up if enough people are doing that. But the reality being that it's one it, the psychology of capitalism also builds this bizarre um, this bizarre sense of valuation where if you aren't 
It's like the band that says you don't have to pay anything for the record, but we'd like you to makes less than the band who goes, you can listen to it as much as you want, but if you buy it, it's $3. And like Mm -hmm. Bandcamp has numbers about that where they're like, yeah, you will make more money and have more listeners, including more free listeners, if you charge more. Whoa. Which it's like, I, like, what? Capitalism's just broken our brains where the notion of, like, oh, I can get this for free? It must be awful. (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah, well, it's interesting because we're living in basically peak capitalism. So, yeah, I don't... It's like a huge decline that's coming up. Yeah. Well, I don't want to live in these interesting times, so... (laughs) No, (laughs) I want them to be just good, not, not exciting. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is too much excitement for me. I've got to lay down. <laughs> Which brings us back to Crudo and kind of what that's about. Kind There's of. a lot of laying down in Crudo. Oh, yeah, a lot. Yeah, but, uh, well, I, that was actually supposed to be a tie-in. I brought it back around. You see how I did that? Nice. Hell yeah. This is going to be really confusing <laughs> for people listening when that hits, and it's going to be actually a callback to a conversation <laughs> that chronologically we hadn't actually had yet. <laughs> oh, whoa. Time travel, man. It's... Totally fry a noodle. This entire uh, episode of Death uh, Death Sentence, by the way, is canonically part of the Cloverfield universe. What? I haven't seen any of those. So. Well, now you're in it. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. I haven't seen the Cloverfield Paradox, but I'm sure this is actually it. Um, so let's... Uh, oh, Christine, did you find that uh, title? Yeah, so okay. um, the the song is High Cost. Uh, the band is High Cost. The song is Illusion. Mm-hmm. And the other song is Antiverse. Um, the band is Antiverse. And then the song is Hallucigenia. H-A-L-L-U-C-I-G-E-N-I-A. And those are the first tracks on each album. Cool. So... Let's finish the episode uh, by playing uh, Antiverse, Solution Genia. It's going to be out on Tridroid Records real soon. And it's probably awesome. I haven't heard it yet, but I'm, I'm going to trust you and assume that it's awesome. And you can come back next week when we've got the Licrit Guy at the Licrit Guy on Twitter and YouTube uh, talking about the book Against Creativity. Because we're against creativity now. Hate it. Yeah, creativity yeah. sucks. Like, <laughs> I, I used to be against Dracula, but now I'm against get, creativity. Whoa. Whoa. Yeah. Whoa. I know. I'm, like... I'm radically pro Dracula. <laughs> well, yeah, but I, I am now. Dracula can become the president because by birth he's a United States citizen. Don't edit okay. out the extended uh, silence. Oh, I'm not. That, that's, that's very much going to be there. So, uh, yeah, come back for that next week. And, um, yeah, and this is Antiverse with Hallucinogenia.